All right, let's pray together. Father, we do give thanks. Uh, you are so good. And uh, Lord, you have come to us in your word and you have revealed who we are to ourselves. And Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, I pray that you uh, would do that in particular ways uh, in these moments as we consider Ezra 4. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, you know, as I was thinking this week about our passage, I really thought of the whole idea of rivalry and uh, it took me back, uh, back to the late 90s when I was in high school. And um, all of us have this idea of rivalry, don't we? Uh, this us versus them and that whole us versus them really does put a hook in the human heart and it draws us. Uh, well, at Boone County High School, it was really clear uh, who our rival was. Uh, at Boone County, uh, we had this long, storied football history. I mean, it was so storied that uh, we actually did produce an NFL MVP out of Boone County High School. And uh, we hardly ever lost games unless it was a Louisville or Cincinnati powerhouse. Uh, we always uh, crushed all the teams in Lexington. And... Um, but then something changed as I grew up late, you know, elementary school, middle school, going to those games. And then I got into high school and we started losing more often. And one of the reasons we started losing more often is because a new high school had been built in our county. It's called Ryle. Some of you may have gone there, may have heard of it. Well, Ryle uh, didn't take them long and they got pretty good and they beat us a couple times in high school and it all created a rivalry. It also created a lot of arrests. Um, a lot of vulgar chants, um, a lot of fights out in the parking lot after the game. It's pretty funny to look back on, but if you were Boone, it was real easy to identify your enemy. It was Ryle. And if you were Ryle, it was easy, easy to identify your enemy. It was Boone. Now, college sports aren't any different, are they? I mean, for UK, our rivals tend to be Tennessee, Louisville, and then Duke. And I submit to you that these are pretty tame. They're pretty tame compared to others. If, if you've been around Ohio State and Michigan fans, it's racketed up a notch. Uh, if you've been around Alabama and Auburn, it's intense. Uh, when Jen and I lived in Birmingham, uh, shortly after we got married, we volunteered at our church for the fifth and sixth grade Sunday school class. We went to the fifth and sixth grade Sunday school class. And the very first day from every single kid in the class, they asked the exact same question. Who you fur, Bama or Auburn? And uh, I didn't really know what to say. Uh, but I guarantee you, uh, I, I know UK fans like Louisville, dislike Louisville. I know they dislike Tennessee. I know they dislike Duke. But if you went and taught our children's class, none of our kids are going to ask you as their first question, who you for? Tennessee or UK? Who you for? UK or Duke? Who you for? UK or Louisville? It's just not going to happen. But when you think about Christianity, who's our rival? Who is our opponent? Well, it's not Duke. Um, it's not Louisville. It's not Tennessee. And I know we're all about love. God is love within himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbor. But we must be reminded that there is an opponent. We must be reminded that there is a war going on. And I realized it this week. Oh, the Pat... Um, I get together with the pastors from Tate's Creek, and we have a time of prayer once a month. And uh, we, whatever day of the month it is, we take that psalm. So we met on the 24th of October, so we took the 24th psalm. And then we add 30 to it. So we did Psalm 24, 54, 84, 114, and 144. So we did those five psalms. If you do that over the course of a month as an individual, you have read uh, all of the psalms. Okay? So we just took those five psalms. We would read them, and then our prayers would come out of them. And when we read them, we got done and we said, hey, what were some common themes that you saw? And the one that came up 
that uh, one of the other pastors from Tate's Creek saw is they said, man, the, 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 whole, uh, the whole subject of war comes up. And I was like, man, you're right. I saw that too. And rightfully so. Let me read to you uh, what I saw. Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 54. Verses five and seven, he will return the enemy. Or he will turn the e- evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So you see the opposition. Psalm eighty-four, verse nine: Behold our shield, O God! Look on the face of your anointed shield. It's a battle instrument. Psalm 114, verse 2. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. In other words, the place in which he had battled and won. This is dominion. Psalm 144, verse 1. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now, I don't like this aspect of Christianity. And the big part is I'm a nine on the Enneagram. We got another nines in the house. Um, It's called the Peacemaker. And here's a quote from my report. This is direct quote. Uh, Nines want to find unity and wholeness, create harmony in their environment, to feel spacious and at ease, to emphasize the positive, to avoid conflicts and tension, to resist change, to preserve things as they are, and to ignore whatever would upset or disturb them. Nines do not want to have conflicts with loved ones, to feel cut off or separated from others, to be angry, to be upset or disturbed, to have their habits or routines interrupted, to arouse themselves or to be emotionally uncomfortable, or to be forced to face unpleasant realities. So you can imagine how much I hated reading and praying those five psalms. Because I don't like this whole idea of conflict and battle and war. They're unwelcome in my life. But it's important whether you're a nine or you're a one through eight, as long as you're a Christian, that you know about this whole thing of war and conflict. We need to know who the opposition is. And in Ezra, there are a couple areas where faithfulness to God is going to require that his people do conflict. And the one we're going to look at today involves conflict with the Samaritans, people on the outside. But then later in the book, chapters 9 and 10, uh, we're going to look at conflict that arises within the church. So let's read our passage today. Ezra 4, we're going to read verses 1 to 5 and then verse 25 or 24. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. And the heads of fathers' houses, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then the work 
on the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The word of the Lord. So last week, uh, if you were here, we started this whole series on Ezra. And at the very beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1, you see that God's people are released from Persia, where they're being held in captivity. And they're released to go back to the promised land. And the first thing that they're going to do when they go back to the promised land is that they're going to rebuild the temple. And the really good news is that they don't have to pay for it. The king of Persia has actually offered to flip the bill. And so the outlook of chapters 1 to 3 of Ezra, they're extremely optimistic. And it seems like the temple is going to be built in no time. But a challenge comes almost right away to the people of God. And it makes you ask these questions. Will Israel compromise and be defiled by the people of the land again, just like they've done in the past? Will Israel maintain purity? Will they maintain holiness even in the midst of difficulty? And that's what we have in Ezra 4. In Ezra 4, it it records four separate instances of Israel's work being opposed by the haters. Verses 1 to 5, what we just read. This happens in 538. Verses 6 and 7 that we didn't read happens 50 years later in 485. Verses 8 to 16, it happens around 464. And then verses 17 through 23 happens in 445. And then you've got verse 24. And verse 24, what it does is it picks up where verse 5 has left off. And so that's what we're going to drill into is verses 1 to 5 and verse 24. And we're going to ask this text three questions. Who is our enemy? Why is our enemy dangerous? And how do we overcome our enemy? Who is our enemy? Why is our enemy dangerous? And how do we overcome our enemy? So who's our enemy? Well, you get a clue. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, it gives this little historical detail of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Well, I didn't know this when I read it for the first time, but what I found out is that really what this is referring back to is 2 Kings chapter 17. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, Assyria has come into Samaria, and Assyria has wiped out everyone in Samaria. Everyone's dead in Samaria. And so instead of leaving it open for maybe Assyria's other opponents to repopulate, the king of Assyria, Asarhaddon, is a pretty smart guy. So he decides to get other conquered peoples that he hadn't totally wiped out, and he forces them to move into what was Samaria. There's, these were people from Babylon and Kutha and Ava and Hamath. And shortly after he repopulated them, repopulated Samaria with all those different people, the Lord sent lions. And the Lord sent lions and killed some of the people there. And what the king of Assyria, and really what everyone in the ancient Near East believed at the time, is that land was tied to a god. And so uh, the, the king of Assyria knew that this used to be the land of Israel. And so he thought, well, I better appease the god of Israel so that lions don't come and eat all these people up. And so what he does is he orders that a Jewish priest come and, uh, pr- and, and provide worship there in the land of Samaria. A priest goes up there and does that, teaches the law of God. And by the time you get to verse 33 in 2 Kings 17, it says this. So they feared the Lord, people in Samaria, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. 
So you see what they're doing. They're just adding Yahweh. They're just adding the God of Israel to their life without taking away their former gods. And these kind of people, they sound like kind folks, don't they? You see it in verse 1, where they offer to help rebuild the temple. They seem like the kind of folks that if you're doing a habitat rebuild and, uh, you, and, and, you, and, and they're walking down the street, that they'll just jump in there and join you. But that's not what's going on here. The Samaritans are coming in under the guise of friendship. But Zerubbabel, the leader of God's people, he identifies the Samaritans not as co-workers, but as enemies. Because that's who they really are. I know that the phrase, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do and we've been sacrificing to him. I know that sounds like a courteous offer, but it's not that. What they really wanted was control. And it becomes really obvious once you get to verse 4. The Samaritans are on this campaign of harassment. Look what happens in verse 4. It says uh, three things. They discouraged the people of Judah. You see it? It says they made them afraid. In other words, they intimidated the people of God. And in the beginning of verse 5, it says they bribe counselors, which really means that they buy professional help to frustrate this new and vulnerable community that's just moved back from Persia. So what looked like an innocent offer of aid to the Israelites really turned out to be a manipulative ploy to control God's people. You might be sitting there and say, come on, Marsh, this is 2,500 years ago, bro. This is ancient. This barely makes any sense to me. But you need to know something. Discouragement, intimidation, and frustration are still the experience of God's people. And for the Israelites, it came in the form of Samaritans. But our source does not necessarily come from a group of people. You might think it does. You might think that a certain group of people are the enemy of church. Maybe it's the liberals. Maybe it's the conservatives. But you have to ask, what is it that makes the Samaritans a threat? Well, I think it was their pluralistic attitude towards religion. And pluralism exists today, too. And pluralism is just the belief that you can take two or more sets of religions and let them coexist. You can take Christianity, the best of Christianity and the best of another world religion, mix them together, and you've got pluralism. Now, the Samaritans, they thought they could hold on to their various forms of paganism while weaving the worship of Yahweh into it and have their own thing. And this whole thing is it's alive and well today. It, it, it's that whole thing that there's more than one way to God. It's all saying all religions are really basically the same. They all have the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the whole thing of it's just important to believe in something. That's pluralism. And pluralism, it's, it's, it's different than atheism. See, atheism just says that all religions are scams. And most Christians can sniff out an atheist because their claims are so much different. But a pluralist can say, now I happen to be a Christian. But I also think God loves uh, Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs. I know that sounds appealing. And it is true that God loves all kinds of people. We are our, all his creation. We're all made his image. But this may be a half-truth. This may be slanted. This may be a form of spin. 
So yes, God loves Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs, but he still demands that you come to him through the person and work of Jesus Christ and him alone. So, you can see that our opponent isn't so much a group of people as it is an idea. And the whole idea of pluralism, think about what it does to Jesus. It really opposes his supremacy. It makes him one of many, and it robs him of his uniqueness. In some ways, it's kind of like my car. I've had five, I've been driving for 22 years, I've had five cars. And there's a certain level, there, there is some attachment to them. You know, I named the first few names that I really can't say from the pulpit, but I named my first few cars, and there is some attachment to them. I really like the, my old pictures I have of my old dirty cars, but they're just cars. I'll have another one. And Jesus isn't just one among many that makes life work. He's not just here for this season of your life to give you a sense of the, the divine and then you'll move on to something. He's not just here for now to give you a purpose bigger than yourself and then you'll find another purpose bigger than yourself. He's the only son of God. He's the only savior of sinners. He rose again from the dead. No other religious leader has pulled that off. And that's what makes pluralism an opponent to Christianity. So, our opposition. Now, there are other oppositions. We'll, we'll see it. Where there are other enemies uh, of, of God's people. But this is the one under view in our text. is this whole idea of pluralism. This idea. But why is it so dangerous? That's who it is. But why, why is it so dangerous? Well, it's pretty simple. Look at verse 24. It makes the work stop. <laughs> they stop rebuilding the temple because of the Samaritans' opposition. So, their opposition. It was totally effective. And you might say, well, Marsha, I mean, they should have been a little more diplomatic. They should have let the Samaritans help. If they would have done so, they might have achieved what they set out to do. They would have built the temple. I hear you. They may have gotten a temple built, but they would have ceded control. The Samaritans could have said, all right, people of God, you guys can have the 9 a.m. slot on Sunday morning. We'll take the 11. We, we, we want to be cosmopolitan around here. We want to give the freedom to choose. You guys, you, you guys are different in some ways and you have something unique to offer. We need a space here in this physical space, a temple that's welcoming to all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of ideas. They could have said that, couldn't they? You can just hear, hear them saying that, can't you? But what happens if God's people would have fired back, and they did, and said, nope, can't do that. This space, this temple is exclusively for Yahweh. No 11 o'clock service for you. We don't need your help. How would they have responded? Well, they would have responded just like they did in verse 4 and 5. And at this juncture, the people of God could have said, hey, um, I thought you were cosmopolitan. I thought you said we had something unique to offer. I thought you said you wanted to give everyone the freedom to choose. So we're choosing to exclusively worship Yahweh and offer something unique. See, that's the rub with pluralism. The very thing that pluralism seems to offer you, total inclusivity, 
becomes exclusive. It becomes dogmatic and can even become violent towards any religion that will not hold to their dogma of inclusivity. So you see, pluralism becomes in fact exclusive, the very thing that it tries to avoid being. Now the same is true in our culture, isn't it? People don't care you're a Christian as long as you think every other religious stance is equally valid. And if you don't believe that, then watch out. You'll get cut out just like the Israelites. So it does beg a question, doesn't it? How do we deal with this? If all religions, if the religion of pluralism can make truth claims, and these truth claims have the potential to be incredibly divisive, then which religion among all that exists create the societal space even in the midst of disagreement? Which religion creates the societal peace in the midst of disagreement? I would like to posit to you that it's Christianity. That it's the gospel. And that's what we need to overcome our opposition. See, Christians, we believe that all people, not just Christians, are created in the image of God. Christians believe that even unbelievers are recipients of God of common grace. And most of all, Christians, we follow a man who willingly died to save his enemies, who willingly died to save those who disagreed with him, who willingly died to save those who were his opposition. See, the gospel tells us that we're not saved because of the strength of our religious convictions. Now, we could think our salvation depended on the degree to which we're enlightened, the degree to which we're faithful, the degree to which we're committed. But as Christians, we know that we only believe because we were drawn to belief. We know that we only know anything because it's been revealed to us. So when someone says, why do you believe in Jesus? You know you can't say, well, you know, I studied really hard. And I figured it all out. Therefore, I'm a Christian. That answer is off the table. The other one that's off the table is, you know, I'm a Christian because it's all I've ever known. I just kind of grew up in it. Off the table. If someone were to say, why do you believe in Jesus? A Christian can only say with all humility this. I'm really shocked that I'm a Christian. I don't deserve anything except death and judgment But because of Jesus, I have life and love because God found me. See, when you're armed with that truth, what it does, it propels you to profound humility and also boldness. Humility because you know you didn't get in on your own merits. You know you got in on the merits of Jesus. And boldness because you know you don't need the approval of man. You don't need people to see how tolerant, how compassionate, how strong, how faithful, or how good you are because of your religion. Boldness and humility. George Whitfield. Uh, George Whitfield was a, a famous British minister in the 1700s. He preached both in Britain and in the American colonies, and he had great success. And during his lifetime, uh, one of the hallmarks of his ministry was the conversion of 
pastors under his ministry. In fact, preaching to ministers was one of his calling cards. He was always denouncing the clergy for their lack of faith. Back in his day, there were a lot of clergy just filling pulpits, a lot of clergy just receiving paychecks, but there was really no blessing from the Holy Spirit. So what Whitfield did is he called them to repent. Now I want you to imagine, how do you think preachers responded to George Whitfield? They hated him. In fact, one biographer said the only way you could see any fire in these preachers' bellies was to get them to talk about Whitfield. But he also saw some converted. There was one publisher that, that, that published 200 pamphlets about Whitfield during his life, and 154 of them were written against him by ministers who he denounced. So knowing all that, knowing that some ministers were converted under Whitfield's ministry, knowing uh, others responded with great hate, how would you advise Whitfield to go about this kind of ministry? If he's quiet, he's not going to see any conversions. But if he doesn't speak out, he doesn't face all the hate. What should he do? Brother and sister, you can be assured that your opposition is going to be relentless. If you fight against pluralism, you need to know that you're in a war. You really do have a rival. And what Ezra 4 does is that it gives us a dose of sober realism. But it also gives us a a dose that God can finish what he starts. So the temple did get built. We're going to see that. It took a lot longer than they expected. But really it's just evidence that God didn't give up on them. And as you fight against your opposition, it looks like you're losing. God's not going to give up on you either. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for wisdom. Uh, We know that this is a huge cultural value. And we know that it can be tempting for us to shrink down. We also know it can be really tempting for us to be hateful. And to look uh, at our world and our culture as something in which you cannot move in. That is too far gone. And so, Lord, I pray you'd give us hope. That person that we're already projecting that they're going to hate us. They might be the one who's going to be converted. Lord, give us that kind of hope as we engage uh, our neighbors, our co-workers, our loved ones. As we think about the air in which we breathe. We pray these things in your name. Amen.